Thank you guys for coming. Again, we're picking up our second week of our <coughs> end time series in which I have uh, been wearing a tinfoil hat, which may make another appearance. Tonight, um, the design of the four-lesson seri- four series on the end times is to give you an overview and engagement with um, the concept of the Christian view of the end um, with the relevant biblical passages and with some different uh, vantage points on perhaps how it will happen. Um, on the, in the first session, kind of to reiterate, I made the big point that if nothing else, I want you to walk away from this with four things. What are those four things? Does anyone remember? What were they related to? Not the Mosaic Covenant. Not salvation. What? I'm totally comfortable with silence. Jesus will return as one, right? So the four principles are the four concrete orthodox things that we can say about eschatology or the study of end times, right? To be a Christian, Christians throughout all centuries have affirmed four basic things. Okay, And outside of those four, you can kind of have all kinds of weird, kind of bizarre views in terms of what you think is going to happen and still be a really good Christian person who believes in the Bible right, and loves the Lord. Those four things are A, the literal physical return of Jesus Christ, B, the resurrection of the dead, C, the final judgment right, of the living and the in the dead, and, and D, the eternal state, which would encompass both the concepts of heaven and hell. So if you believe those four things, then you're good, right? And the rest is largely speculation. Now, um, within, you know, within that, um, it's not that speculation is necessarily bad. I mean, we have a number of biblical texts, and we affirm that the Bible is God's Word, and guides us and is our uh, uh, you know, rule in terms of faith and practice. So, as diligent Christians, we're called to submit our, both our hearts to the Lord, but our minds as well, right? And study the text and, and try, to, um, try to embrace a view of the future, which is how I prefer to look at things, right? In terms of hope, right? The great Christian hope is the return of Jesus, rather than framing things always kind of in these pessimistic terms, you know, like end times. But if I didn't name the class end times, odds are half of you wouldn't have come. All right? Because, because there's a $180 million uh, prophecy book market, Christian prophecy book market in the United States. $180 million a year. So there's a pretty good market for quote-unquote end time stuff. Which means that you'll never find a bookstore without... Somebody somewhere saying something about, you know, the end and the Middle East and oil and Israel and Iran and Russia. You know, it used to be Russia and, you know, but then Russia kind of fell off the map for a while, but now they're kind of whatever. So point being, there's no lack of speculation in terms of what's going to happen in the future and what that means for us as Christians. And to some degree, um, it's, it's, it's a, well... I think in every degree it's a, it's a healthy enterprise. Um, but what we're going to do tonight is focus first on um, a primary biblical text um, related to 
the end times or for some the great tribulation. Um, and what I am going to um, suggest to you and present to you, I, I argued last time that um, what is it that separates the Bible from uh, our doctrine? Remember I drew my little picture and we had the, we had the Bible and then we have you know, Rock Point Church's statement of belief. How do we get to Rob Reed's statement of belief from the Bible? Does it emanate from heaven? <laughs> Interpretation. Interpretation, right? The Bible doesn't interpret itself. It's a, uh, the Bible is composed of 66 books from a variety of periods, from disparate cultures, uh, geographical locations, and written in three languages. So there is the distance of time, of geography, of culture, worldview, language. Uh, there's, a, there's a number of distances that we have to bridge in order to um, gain an appreciation for the meaning of the text. Right? And, and all individuals, conservative and liberal or whatever, are all going to um, have to deal with the issue of interpretation. And uh, I think most would agree that in order to interpret a passage, you first have to understand. In order to know what the text means for me, right? This is, this is typically how, how we talk in, 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 you know, in church language, right? What does the Bible mean to me? Right? Or what does the Lord have to say to me? And then we do our fun little Christian fortune cookie process where we, you know, run the text through and kind of close our eyes and point, right? And then this is what God is saying to me, right? But in terms of interpreting the text, we have to know what the text meant to its original hearers first or seek to know, right? It's not a, it's not a an perfect process. Right, because we're dealing with history and time and distance of culture and all of those factors that I mentioned. But as Christians, it's our duty to seek to try and understand a text within its context. Meaning, we need to know what those who follow Jesus likely thought in terms of how they heard certain parables of Jesus before we take those parables and transfer them 2,000 years into our modern context and world of iPhones and iPads and everything else and begin to apply those principles to our lives. Frankly, some of the examples that Jesus uses are largely placed in agrarian societies. We don't live in an agrarian society. So how does that apply? Well, I mean, at face value, it doesn't unless you do the interpretive work, right, to try and identify what is it that's universal, right? What is it that comes out of the passage and is universally applicable across generations, right? What is the theological truth? Does that make sense? Okay. So our case in point tonight, though, is going to be a little bit different than what you're used to. 
Can anybody think of, and since you've been so talkative this evening so far, I'm very confident that you'll have much to say, but can anybody give me some, some ideas uh, or some examples of just common American expressions? This is not apple of the eye, right? My daughter is the apple of mine. What does that mean? No. Yeah, she's special to me. She, she, she identify her especially in my sight, right? So we use all these metaphors to communicate something very clear, right? As, as American as apple pie, right? What else? You the bomb. <laughs> you the bomb, right? Where bomb, where, right, where, if, if, if you were to, if you were to send me that text message though, right, the, uh, what is it, the NSA or TSA or whatever, the transportation folks, right, and the government might be looking at you funny, right? Because in the context of our conversation, saying that's the bomb, right, means one thing. But to say it in a different context, might mean something entirely different, right? Which illustrates the point of how important context is to communication. Okay? Well, what if I were to suggest to you that the Bible is no different? That various aspects of the Bible, right, use the same kind of communication skills that we do, right, and sometimes talk by virtue of analogy and express things in terms of idiom, just like we do probably more than we notice every day. I just want you to think about these things as we explore the text. So the text we're looking at tonight is Matthew 24, known as the Olivet Discourse. Why is it called the Olivet Discourse? Anyone know? Genius! You you need to stay in class tonight because clearly you are a bright student. The Olivet Discourse is the discourse given on the Mount of Olives. Um, and um, which of the Gospels was written first? Do we know? Any ideas? Again? It wasn't Matthew. Early church tradition thinks that it was, but most critical scholarship doesn't. When, who, what was the first gospel? Mark. Mark was the first gospel. See, you come to my other class. Mark is the first gospel, right? Mark's written somewhere around the 60s A.D. Right? He's a hippie. So Mark writes first. Mark is a more abbreviated gospel, right? Shorter, quicker, more succinct. Um, and then we have Matthew and Luke, which both write probably, uh, in, we think, that Matthew and Luke write independently of each other, but they both have access to Mark. Okay? This is what's called the synoptic problem, right? The problem of how do we make... Because there's so many passages that are shared across the Gospels, but if you look at them closely, there's a number of very distinctive differences, right? So certain passages that show up across the Gospels may show up with different features, the evangelists, and by evangelists I mean Matthew, Mark, and Luke, may have uh, presented the material differently. Okay? 
according to their own literary style and editorial practices. Right? Because part of what we affirm in terms of Scripture is that we affirm, we believe, that these, that Scripture is God's inspired Word. But that process of inspiration, right, we affirm that these individual authors actually used their own words as well, along with being divinely inspired by God. Meaning, Paul or Matthew or Mark, although writing the inspired words of God, didn't lose their own uh, grammatical style or choice of vocabulary. Meaning, God didn't take them over and make them little, you know, machine-like automatons that just crank out uh, kind of the dictation of God. But rather, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit in such a way that the words that they wrote were genuinely the words of God and yet preserved their own kind of unique personalities. Right? So Matthew and Luke uh, write somewhere around the same time but probably don't have access to each other. Right? However, they do share a source that's not found in Mark. Meaning, there is stuff in Matthew in, in Matthew and Luke that is not found in Mark, which has often been identified as Q. Right? It doesn't exist as an independent source, okay? but it does exist in Matthew and Luke. It's the material that they share that Mark doesn't have. Does that make sense? Kind of, sort of, maybe a little. But here's the, here's the important part for tonight. If Mark writes first, which is the kind of standard understanding, and Mark and Matthew uses Mark, okay, then uh, and Luke writes independently of Matthew and uses Mark. So taking the standard solution to the to the synoptic problem, it will impact how we read this text, and I'll tell you why. Because if Matthew presents X, Y, and Z in the text, but some of it's unclear, but Luke presents the same thing, but maybe clarifies a few details, then does Luke help us to interpret Matthew? Or, in this one instance, because it just happens to be about one of our pet issues, that we really need to kind of massage and we want to keep around because it kind of is involved in some of the things that we hold dear, do we suggest that perhaps what Matthew is doing is completely and utterly different, right? And Matthew's vision of what he's presenting Jesus say is so different than Luke's that Matthew's has to be interpreted all by itself. Because what Matthew's talking about is something different. These are questions you're going to have to ask of the text. Okay. And it may seem theory laden at this point, but in a few moments it won't. Say again? No, no, no. The Apocrypha is a, is a distinct body of books that show up. Uh, they're part of the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible um, and were probably part of the same Bible that Paul had or whatever, just because they're part of the Septuagint. Um, but the Jews never really held them as canonical, um, and I mean they don't. No, not the no. Q Q exists. Look, Q is is uh, the abbreviation for the German word quell, meaning source. 
Okay? Source critics started looking at the three Gospels and trying to figure out the relationship. Um, what's the relationship? I mean, that's a really good question because they have so much shared material, but some stuff's different. Example, Mark, in Mark chapter 2, there's this big long story uh, about Jesus opening the roof. Uh, no, excuse me, Jesus being in the house. People can't get to him. They bring a paralytic, four, four or five guys, a group of guys, bring, them, bring this paralytic on a stretcher. They can't get to Jesus. They cut open the roof and lower, Jesus in, or lower the paralytic to Jesus. Jesus heals him, right? Says your sins are forgiven, right? This causes controversy. But he does it by virtue of their faith, right? Not because of his, but because of their faith. Um, but that same story is told in Matthew 9, right? But Matthew probably because of his own literary designs, shaves off different aspects of the story. He doesn't. He drops the, basically the entire description of them taking off the roof and lowering the guy down, or the fact that they brought him. He kind of shades things off because in Matthew's broader story of Jesus, he's highlighting the opposition between the Pharisees and Jesus. So by shaving off some of the extra details, he's able to bring this very clear distinction between the two. Does that make sense? So they're presenting the same story, the the fundamental kernel, as it were, of the story. I mean, the the gist of it hasn't changed at all. It's just different details are highlighted. Does that make sense? Well, in the same way, you've got stuff that are shared between Matthew and Luke, but Matthew and Luke are so different that it really stands against reason that they had any access to each other because they do stuff with the material so differently. And so this is just a solution, a a hypothesis, as to how Matthew and Luke share this certain material. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So they have different writing styles. Yeah, they have different. But Q just represents material found that's in the text, found in Luke and in Matthew, but it's not in Mark. And they have no contact. We assume that. So, so the existence of this fourth source. Which could be oral tradition. Yeah, Q could be a Q could be a person. Q could be just oral tradition. It's unclear, but it's something that scholars have distinguished to try and describe this material that's unique to Matthew and Luke, but not anymore. Does that make sense? Why couldn't they just read the same Yeah, but okay. There's 15 different ways in Greek to write Jesus loved John. 15, because of the way the Greek language works, right? So what do you do? There's so much verbatim agreement across the Greek that it's very evident that they were working off of different sources. Does that make sense? Now, I know, I know, I know that why couldn't the Holy Spirit have just inspired the exact same? Um, then what do you do with... They all lived in the... It's plausible. No, no, it is plausible. But Luke wasn't one of the original twelve. Nope. So he would not have had the same experiences. Correct. His experiences would have. Well, Luke admits at the beginning of his gospel, right? He's he's familiar with other accounts and he's compiling one. Okay. So there's a tacit admission. Hmm? His experiences were different than. Well, he admits he didn't have any. 
right? I mean, his experiences are secondhand. He came later. Right. His experiences are secondhand. So it's a more convoluted issue, but I don't want to sidestep the point of Matthew 24. Now, in order, to, in order to look at Matthew 24, what might be a good thing to do? Whoa, 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 what? Before and after. Before and after? Now, why would we want to read the passages before and after a text we're trying to interpret? Right there. Context. Context, right? Okay. Um, so, where do we get? We start off in Matthew 21 with uh, Jesus' triumphal entry. Okay? And what we see uh, is Jesus, you know, you're familiar with the kind of donkey story, right? Tell him that the Lord has need of it, and as he sends his disciples out to get the donkey. And what transpires? But Jesus hops on this donkey, or perhaps two donkeys, depending on which evangelist you read. Might be good to compare passages sometimes. Is it Matthew? Uh, disciples. Jesus sat on them. Yeah, verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them. And Jesus sat on them. Just a curious thing I'll point out. I won't solve for you. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. So what we have is Jesus, as pictured in Matthew, right? The disciples go in order to fulfill this prophecy by Zechariah. They, they grab a donkey and a colt, right? It depends on how you're reading Zechariah. Are we reading the Hebrew text or the Greek text? Because the two passages of Zechariah kind of read differently. Matthew is clearly reading the Septuagint and reading this as two different animals. And so, the disciples go get two different animals. And Jesus is portrayed as sitting on them, however that looks, exactly. But he's riding into Jerusalem, right, in this kind of, as a kind of mock king, right? Uh, but, but different than a... And it's debatable what the donkey means, etc. Point being, what is happening? What is being depicted? Now, in the beginning of the book of Matthew, we get the genealogy of Jesus, and then we get Jesus' birth. And what happens after Jesus' birth? He kind of, doesn't he kind of like jump to John the Baptist? Jump Sorry, to him what him happens? Herod, right? So there's this threat to Jesus, and Jesus is led by the Jesus family, takes the baby where? Egypt, right? And then the Holy Spirit leads them eventually to come back to Egypt or back to Israel. And they come back to Israel and time passes. And then Jesus is led by the Spirit to who? John? John the Baptist to be baptized in the Jordan, right? And then Jesus begins his no. You're thinking of Luke's account, but here's my point. He's baptized, and then he's what? Right. He's led by the Spirit into the Jordan. Jordan. Jordan's a river. He's led by the Spirit into the to be baptized by John, and then. Into the what? 
wilderness, right? Did anybody pick up anything in that whole portrayal at all? I'm asking you to step back for just a second and look at the narrative. Remember the Gospels narrative? What's the story of Israel? That you see Matthew portraying Jesus' life, right, as the reenactment of Israel's history. Think, think about that for a second. Huh? Uh, theoretically. Jewish Christians. But I mean, kind of all the early Christians are Jewish Christians. So Matthew's already portraying Jesus as kind of Israel. True Israel. Right? Because what happens? Israel in the Old Testament goes down into Egypt, is led up out of Egypt. Right? And what happens in the wilderness when they're tested? Do they succeed? They failed. But what happens when Jesus is led out in the wilderness and is tested? He succeeds. So Jesus reenacts the history of Israel, right, but succeeds where they fail. Okay? So you see things in terms of the movement of Jesus himself. I'm going to suggest that perhaps we do in, in the latter passages of Matthew as well. What we see is Jesus coming in in this triumphal entry and it's quoting Zechariah 9. Well, Zechariah 9 is this kind of strange end time-ish passage that portrays Yahweh, God, right, as coming in to Jerusalem to be enthroned. Does that make sense? That's kind of the context of Zechariah 9. Okay? So the appeal to Zechariah 9 by Matthew in Matthew 21 at the triumphal entry, right, at least alludes to this concept of God visiting Jerusalem, right? Of God coming to the city or coming to the, what's in the city? The temple, right? Yahweh visiting the temple. Okay, so Jesus comes in to the city, riding on the donkey, is hailed by some as... Hosanna to the king, the son of David, right? And if we're calling him the son of David, then we're kind of underscoring what that we may have talked about last time. Royalty, but in what sense? Oh, his lineage. Then. Why would we care about his lineage to David? What did God do with David? Oh, he made a covenant with David. Right. So we're tying Jesus to this messianic expectation of a coming Davidic king. He's coming in as a mock king on a donkey colt thing into the city, being hailed by the people and venerated right, as he enters the city. Jesus enters the city and interacts with some of the religious leaders. And then something really bizarre happens in chapter 23. What's that? We don't read this chapter often. So, yeah, the, well, you're reading the subject title. The seven woes, right? So, in chapter 23, uh, Jesus begins to talk to the crowds and to his disciples um, and the teachers in the law and the Pharisees sit at Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put on the men's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. 
Everything they do is done for men to see. So Jesus begins in on this denunciation of the religious leaders and ultimately, which, which functions in concert, who, who leads at the temple? Well, the, the Sadducees are largely running the temple in terms of administration. But, I mean, largely it's the Jewish leadership. It's the high priesthood, those involved with him, the Sanhedrin, the, uh, um, and the, to some lesser extent, uh, Pharisees and Sadducees in a more secondary type social role rather than a, an official ordained role. Right? But what Jesus does and what a woe is, right? When a prophet pronounces a woe, that is the, the uh, penultimate, uh, you know, bad thing a prophet can do is woe to you. Right? I mean, that means judgment. Okay? So what we see in Matthew 23 is Jesus functioning as a prophet, pronouncing prophetic woes. Right? We see this start in what? Verse uh, 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. Okay? You hypocrites. You shut up the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Right? Woe to you blind guides. You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. So here he's addressing social practices right, in terms of oath-taking that were going on. But the point is, these are consecutive prophetic woes, denunciations of the religious leaders who operate in the temple. Okay, And it continues all the way um, where I'd like to pick up specifically uh, is verse 31. Right? Uh, in verse 31, well, I'll start in 29. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Listen to this very clearly. Okay, Jesus' denunciation is, is saying that the religious leaders are guilty of being hypocrites because they sit around saying, if we would have lived in the days of the people of Numbers, we would have believed God in the wilderness. If we would have lived in the days of X, Y, and Z, then we wouldn't have killed the prophet so-and-so. Does that make sense? Okay, that's what starts this. But watch where it continues. So you testify against yourself, against yourself, that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then, the measure of the sin of your forefathers. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so, 
And so, and so, right, and so upon you, but this whole and so construction, right, kind of implies what? Result? Consequence? And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechai, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon which generation? That's going to be a big issue. To what does this generation refer? We'll, we'll, we'll work through. We haven't even got to the real passage. I'm just, I'm setting the stage in terms of context. Okay? Because it's so desperately important that we understand where Matthew 24 falls in relation to what's around it. Right? So, what Jesus has just concluded in doing is to pronounce these prophetic woes on Israel's leaders. And the interesting language that Jesus chooses to, to use, right, seems to speak of a culmination, right? The measure of your ancestors. Fill up the measure of your ancestors. In terms of, right, what is Jesus talking about? Doing unrighteousness and opposing, fundamentally opposing God, right? So fill up the disobedience, the apostateness to which you have inherited and been a part of. Because on this generation, right, all the judgment for all the righteous bloodshed from righteous Abel to Zechariah is going to come upon you. Right? So that so the, the denunciation is against Israel's religious leaders. So then it continues, right? And now we get this this uh, this is like uh, it, it echoes Jeremiah weeping, right? Jeremiah the weeping prophet is weeping over Jerusalem because Jeremiah is the one who keeps prophesying to to Jerusalem for forty years that they're going to be destroyed, that Babylon's coming, that they're going to get you, that God is going to judge you, and they, and and you know all this kind of stuff. That you're going into captivity and there's nothing you can do about it, but they won't listen. And he weeps over the city. Well, what is what does Jesus do? Verse thirty-seven. Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets. Who kills the prophets? Well, but the city, and the city represents what? The religious leaders, right? The leaders in the temple. Um, You who killed the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing, but you were not willing. Look, your what? Your what? Your house. Now what? Who are the what, what's the religious leader's house? Oh, that place where they work and God's supposed to live, the temple. Your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, 
you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay? So there's our context. Jesus enters in the city, denounces the temple and the temple workers, has his prophetic kind of weeping moment over Jerusalem, pronounces that they will see their temple desolate, Okay, and then we move on to the next scene. Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus then did what? He left. That's kind of important. I don't know if you're familiar or not with this kind of biblical imagery, but in Ezekiel, there are... Uh, there is this description of uh, Yahweh, God, leaving the temple before it's destroyed and going up on the Mount of Olives and hovering God's Spirit, right? The Shekinah, the glory. Okay? So, before the destruction, Ezekiel has this vision where he sees God's Spirit, Yahweh, leaving the temple and going up on the Mount of Olives and hovering. Okay? What we've witnessed, what we've witnessed in the gospel so far is Jesus, right? Very much being we believe Jesus is God, right? Do you think it's possible Matthew could be portraying Jesus as Yahweh? Okay, symbolically entering into the city, coming to his own, not being received, not being recognized, pronouncing denunciations upon the temple as the true prophet and then leaving. And where does he go? Up on the Mount of Olives. Right? So, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when His disciples came up to Him to call His attention to what? Its buildings. What are its? The temple, right? The temple had several little aspects to its construction, right? And so they begin to point out the temple. So here, I want you to picture this, right? We're not just reading the text. I want you to relive the text. Jesus is leaving the temple. His disciples look at the temple, right? And in reference to it, start talking about how wonderful it is, right? And they say, do you see all these things? Jesus asked them. I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one stone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting... so Okay, so what's the context for our passage? What's the subject? The destruction of the temple. Right? That just a very simple reading of the text gives you that. That seems to be the subject matter. Now, if there's more going on, that can be determined. But that's where it starts, at least. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So there's kind of three questions-ish. All right? When will this happen... When is your coming? And what is the sign of the end of the age? Now, there's a serious question in terms of 
how much that, see, what we often do is read back into the disciples' minds stuff that we already think we know. Right? Like the end of the age and the coming of Christ, maybe two separate events. Or not. Or maybe. Depending on how you look at things. But see, the text is loose enough that we can kind of force back in some of our own grids. It's open. Right? But the initial question starts out with when will this happen? And what was the subject Jesus was talking about, not the disciples? The destruction of the temple, right? The disciples point out the temple. Jesus says, you're not going to see one stone left upon another. And then they ask him, when will this happen? What is the sign of the coming of the age? All this kind of thing, right? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming that I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Now, just out of curiosity, I know that we have a wonderful church here filled with educated people. Please tell me, in the sentence, in in the statement that Jesus says in verse 4, watch out that no one deceives you. Who is the indirect object? which kind of functions as a direct object. Yeah, you. Who's you? The disciples, just to be clear. right? So in terms of context, Jesus is talking. He's still talking to the disciples. He's attempting to answer their question. So many will come in my name and claim to be the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of the birth pains, which was somebody's suggestion last week. Remember that? Was that you? It was the other lady. I asked a question last week and I said, what, are we in the end times? And somebody said, the birthday. And I was like, God, oh, he used a biblical metaphor. <sighs> Sorry, unrelated thinking. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. Who? Oh, that's, I'm so glued. We are learning really good interpretive skills tonight. You means disciples. You, you means, you means you. Right? To whoever it's spoken to. Um, Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, you or many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm until the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see, standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, or the abomination of desolation, spoken through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Isn't it funny how Matthew put that there? Almost like it was code language. I don't know. What do you think? Let the reader understand, like somebody might actually know what it meant. It's crazy. I know. 
Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Uh, I'm sorry. Verse 16. Then let those who are in Oh yeah, Judea, right? Geographic location. Flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of his house. Let no one in the field, which assumes what kind of culture? Thought I'd point that out. Go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight, that is your exodus, will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, Shabbat. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles. To deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the desert, do not go out. Or, here he is, in the innermost rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Hmm. Just kind of a cultural question. Uh, if I were to say uh, the cowboys are going up to the frozen tundra in order to melt the cheese heads, what would I be talking about? Those four <laughs> yeah, these days. If I were to make that statement, the cowboys are going up to the frozen tundra in order to melt the cheese heads, what would that mean? Yeah, they're, oh, I see, see, see. That's what, I want a woman to take this part for me. So it's about what? Yeah, about the, right, the Dallas Cowboys going to play the Green Bay Packers where? What's the frozen tundra? Lambeau Field, right? And melt being the verbal synonym that we're going to use, or idiom we're going to use, for defeat, right? So clearly this is theoretical. <laughs> for those, anybody who's, you know. I'm a fair weather fan, and I'll admit it. Uh, point being, though, right, that kind of a statement does make sense. It does communicate. If you are from a certain culture and know a certain group of idioms, a certain group of expressions. But if we were to have a foreign exchange student come to our class tonight from China, and I were to say that sentence, and he or she would open their... Uh, English lexicon or dictionary and begin thumbing through and identify those words. Cowboy, right? What, what would they identify? Well, some Western figure perhaps with a hat, right, in a spittoon, riding on a horse, right? And then they would look up the frozen tundra, right? And they, Do you follow my point? There are a number of things that a dictionary or a lexicon do not enable you to determine 
if language is cultural and coded in a certain way. Right? I only point that out at the same time as this carcass passage because I think it's relevant. Okay? Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the Son of Man will appear in the sky. In the where? In the sky. Right? And all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming where? On the clouds with power and great glory. And He will send His angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Okay? Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. But that, that's typically understood as the ending of that kind of section. Uh, but we'll go all the way to the end. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. What's the analogy? In an agrarian society, when you see the little twigs get tender, you're aware that it's almost summertime. Okay? So, there should be certain things evident that you'll be able to decipher. Right? Even so, when you see all these things, when who sees them? Who's you? I don't know. Seems like who Jesus is still talking to. Unless He's talking past the disciples and, and then this passage has nothing to do with them. doesn't mean anything to them. Because Jesus, what, what they, they ask Jesus a relevant question and He talks right past them to some future generation like us. Because it's all about us. Amen? Amen. So, that's a possibility. Right? Uh, even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. I tell you the truth, this, 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 oh, what's that word? Generation. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So, we're faced with a number of problems as good Christians. Um, because how do we interpret these things? Right? If we're going to... Um, I mean, frankly, if I was a skeptic, I'd come to you and say, look, Jesus seems to predict something that clearly doesn't happen. Right? Or is that where we start? So what we've seen in Matthew 24 is that there's deception and false messianic claims, the prediction of political upheaval, the prediction uh, regarding you and the disciples, the abomination of, the, of desolation. And this has to do with what? Persecution and death. The abomination of desolation, which is spoken by the prophet Daniel, which somebody that's going to read this text ought to be able to understand. Those who are in Judea flee. False Christs are going to rise. The suffering is going to be bad. Great suffering like never before. I told you ahead of time, the Son of Man is going to come like lightning. We have this whole corpse and the vulture thing, carcass and vultures. Sun, the moon, cosmic upheaval, right? Sun's going to be dark and the moon's not going to shine. Stars will fall from heaven. 
Sign of the Son of Man, S-O-M being the abbreviation, my abbreviation for Son of Man, right? S-O-M. Sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and the Son of Man will be seen coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, it's a good idea, right, when we're interpreting the Bible. Uh, this was a principle that came out of the Reformation called the analogy of faith, right? This is, this is, the analogy of faith is simply the principle of allowing uh, clear biblical texts or other biblical texts to help interpret other biblical texts that may be less clear. Right? So if Paul says something that's confusing, could we use a couple other passages that are less ambiguous to try and decipher what it is that Paul means? Does that make sense? The principle came out of the Reformation. Let Scripture interpret Scripture or assist in interpreting Scripture. That's the premise. So, um, let's look first at Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13. Now, uh, you may be familiar with Isaiah chapter 7, the, the kind of famous virgin birth passage. Uh, Isaiah 7 through 9 has a great deal to do with the conflict of Israel. Um, uh, well, the, the conflict that Isaiah is sent to prophesy to King Ahaz regarding him not making an allegiance uh, with the um, with Tiglath-Pileser, the the emperor or king of uh, Assyria. Okay. Um, and uh, so what's going on, right, in behind, kind of behind the virgin birth passage, uh, if you look at Isaiah 7:14, which is, you know, the, the virgin will conceive and bear a child and his name will be Emmanuel, it, it happens within this context of uh, God giving the king a sign, right, so that the king will know that God's serious and not to make an allegiance with this foreign power. Um, But, of course, the king doesn't listen and does make the allegiance, etc. But the point of that and then the subsequent passages seems to depict this expectation of a future, uh, um, well, of a a forward-looking orientation. Now, in in, uh, uh, Isaiah 13, this is an oracle or prophecy against Babylon, and it even starts saying that, right? Verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 1. An oracle concerning Babylon that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw. Right? So there's our subject. Right? Here's a prophecy that Isaiah got from God against Babylon. Raise a banner on a bare hilltop. Shout to them, beckon to them to enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my holy ones. I have summoned my warriors to carry out my wrath. Those who rejoice in my triumph. Listen, a noise on the mountains like that of a great multitude. Listen, an uproar among the kingdoms like nations massing together. The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. They come from faraway lands, from the ends of the heavens. The Lord and his weapons of his, uh, the Lord and the weapons of his wrath to destroy the whole world or country. Interesting. So God's coming and bringing his weapons to destroy the whole world. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, 
All hands will go limp. Every man's heart will melt. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them and they will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look against, they will look aghast at each other, their faces aflame. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and the humble and the pride of the ruthless. So here in this Isaiah oracle, which actually happens, right? I mean, the destruction of Babylon happens. What we have exemplified in Israel's prophetic tradition is this kind of normative prophetic language of cosmic upheaval of cosmic destruction, right? It's a prophetic way of investing political and economic destruction with biblical metaphor. Does that make sense? We do it all the time. Um, Not American as apple pie, but, uh, you know... Uh, that's the most amazing cupcake ever, right? which is not really a good example. Um, but we do this kind of thing. We use what's called hyperbole all the time, right, in our communication. What, what at least Isaiah seems to do is to describe the sun and the moon being darkened, right, and, and this kind of cosmic catastrophe. But what Isaiah is communicating is the destruction of Babylon. A literal, geographic, political, worldly destruction. Right? But this is how the prophets... Uh, I mean, it's evidently characteristic of how the prophet Isaiah prophesies God's destruction against the people. Does that make sense? So there is examples in the Bible of the sun and the moon being darkened and this kind of broad cosmic language that doesn't have to be read in a kind of literalistic, you know, where the sun really turns to blood, like literally, metaphysically, into a liquid like that would be found in our veins. Which is sometimes how people read these passages. Not Isaiah. We don't pay attention to Isaiah. What Isaiah is doing is completely different than what Jesus is doing. Or is it? These are questions that you have to kind of think about. Chapter 20 in Matthew. Yeah, I mean, we're going back a little bit, but it's kind of leading to what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing, when it talks about when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination of the desolation, I don't quite understand what that means. And then further down, it says, at the time the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Well, there are several ways to answer that question. I think there's a possibility that it can be identified, which I'll suggest to you in a few minutes. Because um, both of those we'll, we're going to deal with shortly. Um, the Ezekiel passage, Ezekiel chapter 7, verses 5 through 9, um, is another example. Uh, you can look at it briefly or write it down. I'll quickly read it to you. 
but my only point is to exemplify that the prophets, uh, it is not infrequent among God's prophets for them to use this kind of uh, end of the world language of cosmic collapse um, to describe um, God judging certain nations or uh, raising certain nations and destroying others. Does that make sense? But it doesn't mean literally that the world comes to an end. But frankly, if you're in Babylon and your kingdom is taken over and you're subjected to another nation, then kind of it is like the end of the world, in a sense. Similar to when we bombed Baghdad. Yeah. yeah. Right, shock and awe. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that was Saddam's world, definitely did. Whatever his kingdom was before, it was never that again. And then, you know, we chased him around like a rat for a while until we executed, or until he was caught and executed. But yeah, very similar. I mean, it's a good analogy. So, uh, Ezekiel 7, verse 5, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, disaster, an unheard of disaster. The end has come. The end has come. It has roused itself against you. It has come. Doom has come upon you, you who dwell in the land. The time has come. The day is near. There is panic, not joy upon the mountains. So this kind of language is not entirely um, um, out of sync with other prophets in the Bible. Um, Now, here's something really uh, important and unique. Keep your finger in Isaiah if you haven't already moved away from there, but we're going to go back to Matthew. And um, this is one of the rather appealing verses for me. Uh, Jesus is tried before Pilate, uh, but before the Pilate kind of uh, trial, mock trial, however you kind of want to view that, the uh, Jesus goes before Jewish leaders um, in what some have construed as three separate trials, um, although others have suggested that there were never any formal trials. Uh, the point is that he's interrogated by Jewish leaders. Uh, in uh, Matthew 26, uh, verse 62, the high priest uh, stood up to Jesus and said, are you not going to answer, right? They're asking him, you know, what's the deal? You said you were going to destroy the temple of God, which is funny, right? They're questioning Jesus about saying he would destroy the temple of God, even though they're kind of pointing out something else in his teaching. The point is, uh, they they had a real problem with Jesus denouncing the temple to begin with. But didn't you say you'd destroy it and rebuild it in three days? And the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is the testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest then said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus responds, verse 64, Yes, it is as you say. Jesus replied, But I say to all of you in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy, which uh, the tearing of the garment thing is, is something kind of... Uh, in, it's, it is symbolic, but it, it's actually symbolic... Uh, along with the identification of blasphemy. When one hears blasphemy, they, they rend their garments. Point being, Jesus tells the high priest that pretty soon he's going to see Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven. Right? 
Does he or does he not? Sure seems that way to me. Right? And of course, right, the tacit kind of conservative approach to this has always been, well, Jesus was talking about his final return. Okay, but that doesn't really resolve the tension, right? Which is Jesus having this conversation that we're just going to kind of jack out of its context and force into the future because we don't have any, we don't know what else to do with it. Well, frankly, because it doesn't fit certain grids that we have. Um, now turn to Isaiah chapter 19. Isaiah chapter 19. The little heading says a prophecy about Egypt. Verse 1, an oracle concerning Egypt. See the Lord, that is Yahweh, rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. See, it's not uncommon in the ancient Near East for gods to be considered cloud riders. Baal, the Canaanite god, little god, was thought to, uh, was frequently called the rider of the clouds. Jesus seems to appeal um, to this concept in Daniel chapter 7, when we see a one like a son of man, not the son of man, but one like a son of man, uh, coming on the clouds of heaven. And in this vision that Daniel sees in Daniel chapter 7, he sees this one like a son of man ascending to the ancient of days, probably symbolic of God the Father, and receiving a kingdom and dominion and authority. Right? So it's kind of this ascension motif. Um, now, in the passage in Isaiah, chapter 19, what we see is God, it's not uncommon in the Bible for, for God Himself to be described as coming on the clouds when God comes in judgment. Now, Egypt was judged, literally and historically. But did Yahweh come in bodily form? At least not in the Isaiah context. Okay. But God's coming in judgment, right, is depicted in terms of God coming on the clouds. Does that make sense? So all I'm suggesting is that there's another way to understand this reference to Jesus coming on the clouds. Right? This is entirely distinct. This is different, okay, from the four concrete things that we've already said. Right? So I'm affirming the literal, physical, bodily return of Jesus Christ in the future. What I'm questioning is how to interpret Matthew chapter 24. Here's something that people don't often, don't often gather. Right? And I, I want to be very clear. Very clear. That let's say you believe in, um, uh, for the sake of argument, the the pre-tribulation rapture, which I haven't even talked about yet, but we'll talk about next week, and I'll give you a handy-dandy little diagram. Okay? But, uh, or any views of the rapture, but point being, we'll use that one as an example. Okay? And let's say you have number one, two, three, and four scriptures that support your view. Okay? Well, just because you remove one or two passages that you thought might have supported your view and you decide later that they don't support your view doesn't mean your view isn't right, necessarily. It just means you have less support or you've got to find different support. 
right? Okay. So what at issue in Matthew 24 is not whether Jesus is coming back or not. All that is at issue is how do we interpret Matthew chapter 24? How do we interpret the Olivet Discourse? Right? Now, here's several points that I think need to be made, part of which touch on some of what you brought up. Uh, from the historical record outside the Bible, probably one of the best uh, uh, historians that we have, and granted he's biased for several reasons, is Josephus. Flavius Josephus was a Jewish uh, leader, of, a military leader during the um, Jewish revolt and was captured by the Romans and was, um, he was highly educated and he essentially kind of went over to the Roman side and became a historian, right? Kind of self-preservation, right? Because he was a captured oppositional leader. Um, so he continued to write, and he wrote um, a number of books that survive to this day. Uh, some were about the Jews, uh, because he was one, and about his heritage and religion and his vantage point on things. Um, some, a, a group of books were called The Jewish Wars, or The Wars of the Jews, right? This chronicles the, a number of events during, uh, say, 67 to 70, to the destruction of the temple. Right? Josephus is the only first-hand account we have of this period. The only one. But uh, it's a pretty decent account. And Josephus documents a number of things that may very well relate to this passage. So I'll just illustrate some of them. So Jesus uh, prophesied that in verse 4 and 5 of Matthew 24 that many false Christs would arise. Well, Josephus documents a whole, a whole group of people who were uh, destroyed because a false prophet led them up to the temple to await God's miraculous signs of deliverance. And they were killed. He also talks about another one who leads some people into the woods. Uh, and Josephus states, quote, now there were a great number of false prophets. Now, Josephus was not a Christian. So we don't have any worry about Josephus being biased because he's a Christian and he's trying to say Christian stuff because he's not. He's a Jew. He was never a Christian. So he identifies there were many, a great number of false prophets. Uh, so the, the, perhaps these pseudo-Messianic claims can be warranted historically right before the destruction of the temple. Um, Jesus pronounced wars and rumors of wars. Now, while Jesus was speaking in about 30 or 33, somewhere in there before he is executed, that was under this period known as the Pax Romana. Can anyone, anyone know Latin? What's the Pax Romana? The Peace of Rome. It's one of these eras under Augustine, well, the, the heritage of Augustine, where Rome existed in this wonderful era of peace. Rome was largely a war, you know, at war a lot. But during this period, uh, Rome was at peace. And the economy was good and, and, and largely things were all settled despite the fact that the Jews were subjugated under the Romans. I mean, does that make sense? Um, so... Um, yeah, I won't even try to draw any parallels. So the Pax Romana was going on, the era of, of greatest peace in the Roman Empire. Uh, but in, 60, in the early 60s, after Nero uh, ascended to the throne, and I think I am more or less done with this, so I'll turn it around. 
because this will be helpful. So here, on our timeline, Jesus does his ministry from 30 to 33. The temple is destroyed in 70 A.D. Right? Rome burns in 64. I'll explain that in a second. So we have Nero here, and then Vespian, and ultimately Titus for the destruction of the temple. Okay? 67, the Jewish war breaks out where the Jews revolt. Jewish revolt. Okay? So during this period is the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, where things are great. Um, and uh, then around uh, the early 60s, Nero arises. Nero's kind of not, he's a really kind of shady guy. Marries a 14-year-old boy and castrates him. Kind of a weird fellow. He did some more bizarre things. He's an interesting guy to read about, though. Uh, and then uh, in 64, Rome burns, and the rumor spreads that Nero was watching Rome burn and playing the fiddle, right? Watching Rome burn. We talked about in the men's Bible study, Nero burning Rome, if you remember back when computers were new. Right? Kind of, yeah. So the Nero burning Rome, uh, he burns Rome in 64, uh, or doesn't, or whatever. But it, but anyway, and then he accuses Christians of doing it and begins to persecute Christians. But it's not empire-wide. So things really start to fall apart under Nero's rule. And uh, so as things began to cascade under Nero, things, certainly there were wars and rumors of wars. Right? After all this peace, now we've got all this chaos. Rome's burning, the, and, and Nero's a real cra- you know, crazy leader. He starts out as a young leader where he doesn't really lead. Some other people, Seneca and, and another instructor, lead for him. So things kind of are cool in the, in the early days of, Nero's, uh, of Nero being emperor. It's only until he becomes a little bit older when he starts to do stuff that things really begin to fall apart. Um, and after Nero, uh, there's a series of, of emperors that just start knocking down. Boom, boom, boom. Um, one dies after the other, and, and things become extremely unstable in, in uh, Rome. Uh, and before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, uh, when Vespian uh, came in to kind of conquer the region and, and subjugate it again, uh, because of the Jewish revolt, um, that could also account for some of the wars and rumors of wars. Um, it's also interesting to note several things that Josephus points out. He records that the Roman army surrounded Jerusalem and destroyed all the trees and vegetation. Uh, he recorded, quote, the multitude of carcasses that lay in heaps one upon another was a horrible sight and produced a pestilential stench, unquote. Uh, So bearing in mind the ritual purity of the Jews and what these dead bodies and blood meant to them in that regard, uh, not to mention the disease which festered among their communities as a result, is uh, significant, you know, in relation to the accuracy and surety of Jesus' prophecy, if in fact that's how we interpret it. 
the famine grew so terrible that Josephus records a Jewish mother taking her own child that was nur- literally described as, as nursing at her breast, slew him, roasted his flesh, and ate him. Things were pretty desperate for Jews during the Jewish revolt. This was not just some minor thing. I mean, there's a number of, of things that are described by Josephus. I mean, horrible things. Things you wouldn't ever think of um, that people do when they're starving to death and dying of disease, right? And in war, right? which we have very little kind of real sense of. I mean, we watch it on TV every day. We've been in three wars for how many years now? But like, how real is war to us? Unless we have military in our family who are actually there and come back and tell us what real war is like. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, I, I, even me. I mean, I'm, I'm admittedly telling you. I mean, I, I'm completely desensitized. I mean, you see pictures of the war every day. So at what point does it cease to become real? Yeah, yeah. When you're <laughs> when you're there. Um, so my point is there. there at very least, we should take seriously some of the historical record. It may or may not tell us uh, anymore, but I want to point out a couple more things before our time is over. So, um, Jesus' proclamation concerning the pers- persecution that the disciples would have endured um, obviously would have would have fit with this under the uh, persecution of Nero. Um, he crucified Christians on crosses up and down. Uh, the streets. He burned them on crosses. Um, he um, he had people tied to trees and put on a wolf skin and ran around in the forest biting them. <laughs> He's a bizarre guy, really. Um, so Jesus described the abomination of desolation, right? An event that Jesus identified with Daniel's prophecy and located its fulfillment, right? He said, you'll see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. What could that mean? Let the reader understand. This finds very clear fulfillment in the destruction of the temple proper, which Josephus records in the wars of the Jews. Uh, In context, an abomination to the Jews largely had to do with ritual purity, holiness codes, contained in the law and sanctity of the most holy place, namely the temple. Thus, the abomination most likely has a direct relation to the temple. There are various aspects in which this prediction found fulfillment capped by what I think uh, might be considered the abomination of desolation. First, during the siege of the temple, the temple itself was set on fire. While the temple was burning, uh, the Romans laid siege to it. And during this time, Josephus records, quote, Now, round about the altar, lay dead bodies heaped upon one another. As the steps going up to it ran a great quantity of their blood, whether also the dead bodies that were slain above on the altar fell down. Unquestionably, then, the death and human blood was in direct violation of Levitical holiness codes concerning priests in the temple. Um, Josephus also records the high priest lament over common people with fresh blood on their hands uh, walking in and out of the holy place and also uh, the outer temple uh, Josephus records quote was all overflowed with blood and had laying in it 8,500 dead bodies there unquote this was clearly an abomination Uh, now here's the other thing that Josephus records quote 
the Romans, upon the burning of the holy house itself, and of all the buildings around it, brought their ensigns. These are eagles placed on their armor. To the temple and set them over against its eastern gate. And there they offered sacrifices to them, to the Roman gods, and made Titus and offered emperor worship to Titus, the conquering general. Okay? Uh, with the greatest acclamations of joy. Unquote. Uh, now, is it possible that where the corpse or the carcass, right, Jerusalem, is there the vultures, i.e. the Romans, the Roman ensigns, will gather. Um, and also an interesting thing that might point to this uh, sign you mentioned. Um, Jesus talked about the sign of the Son of Man appearing in, in the heaven. Um, and uh, Josephus records um, a, quote, a star resembling a sword... What does a sword look like? Interesting. Josephus records a star resembling a sword that appeared in the sky over Jerusalem for an entire year. It's kind of weird. Here again, in a very real sense, uh, so... You know, in a very real sense, the, the, the question is, how do we interpret Matthew chapter 24? Now, there's one other issue that we'll get to in our last few minutes, and then I'll wrap everything up. Turn to Luke chapter 21. Absolutely. Any questions are more than welcome. Luke chapter 21. Um, Josephus also does record there are a number of earthquakes and different stuff. That's the thing, right? Is because you look around or you look on the news and you see the, the stuff going on in Japan or the, the tsunamis here and things around the world, right? And we, we get knowledge of all this all the time, right? And the, the question is kind of, history's full of this, right? There's not really more now than there ever have been. There have always been a lot. There were in ancient times. There are now. So that could kind of fit either way. And the reason it seems more is we're globally connected by TV. Right. hundred years ago, you wouldn't know anything was happening over there. So it feels like there's more today because you see it all over the globe. Where not that long ago, you didn't know about it. Oh, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I mean that's puzzling. Yeah, could, could, you, could you imagine before, before TV... Or ra- before before radio, like how would we know about something that happened in India? It may be a month before we found out about something that happened in in India if we found out. You know what I mean? So, yeah, that's a very good point. So Luke chapter twenty one. Uh, this is essentially the very same uh, uh, text that we had in, in Matthew. Uh, the details are very. I mean, it's, it's almost verbatim, although there are. Uh, some some different aspects to it, perhaps most importantly, uh, verse 20. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Let those in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter in. 
for the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written, how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women, etc., etc. So, uh, Luke interprets the Olivet Discourse in terms of the destruction of Jerusalem. He depicts Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. So, there's no... There's no, it's not difficult to ascertain what, how Luke interprets Jesus' words or portrays them. So the question is, how do we deal with Matthew? Now, as a little fodder for next week, um, I've, 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 I have no doubt uh, given a rather biased presentation in terms of trying to lay the emphasis on a historical fulfillment. Right? That doesn't mean, however, that there can't be what an individual might call a dual fulfillment, right? Or in theological jargon, this big word, apotelismatic. Meaning, it's kind of like when you see, and maybe this is the better drawing for it, um, and you, I'm sure you've heard this illustration before, right? If you see two mountains in the distance, can you tell me which one is closer? Can you tell me which one, can you tell me how far they are apart? No. Right. So, perhaps, right, uh, there is a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment to Jesus' words. I'm not here to tell you what to believe. I'm trying to help you rationalize with some of the issues. What you're saying is if, I mean I think what I'm hearing is I say it like a counselor. What I'm hearing you say is that you feel <laughs> Well now is I mean now I'm real Why? Well I'm trying to think you're saying that during the biblical time there was something and then they're talking about all the things that are happening then and that your which is us or late. Yeah. Is that what you're... Could. Okay. Right. Remember, and, and perhaps this will help us close the evening, right? There are four things that are orthodox. Believing in the return of Jesus, literal, physical, bodily return of Jesus, resurrection of the dead, final judgment, eternal state. How it happens, when it happens, are completely open. All you got to do is still believe that Jesus is coming in the future. Now, if whole systems of what the future is going to look like are built upon a bunch of passages that when you investigate them further, perhaps do or don't relate to the future, our future, then that doesn't take anything away from Jesus still returning. Maybe it just takes away what some perceive to be a roadmap. You know, you didn't mention anything about what talked. We didn't discuss what talked about in the generation. Yeah, this generation. People gen- always try to compartmentalize that into. Yeah, the, the, which is a good, which is a good point. The the phrase "this generation" um, clearly in Matthew twenty three, this generation is seems to be the religious leaders he's denouncing, uh, and every other place in the in the book of Matthew, except for once in the genealogy. This generation refers to 
the contemporary generation to Jesus. So, some have suggested, who, who look, good Christian people come to this text and say, well, Jesus didn't return and the elect haven't been gathered and, and the sun hasn't been darkened and, and blood hasn't, you know, the moon hasn't turned to blood. And we believe that the Bible has to be read literally because if you don't read it literally, then you're not, then you don't believe in the Bible right, which is an assumption I would challenge right at the, right at the beginning. And nobody reads the Bible literally, right? And if you do, poke your eye out. Um, <laughs> right? Jesus said, pluck your eye out. If it's, you know, seriously, tell me your eye hadn't sinned. Here's a fork. Let me know how that works out for you. That's kind of like my boss said, why do, you, why do you go to a Bible study? All the Bible is is about who, who be God who. And I said, okay, whatever you think, you know, everything's there. And he just, you know, popped to the hand. Huh? Well, okay. Some the people. Bible says the generation of race. Same thing as well, I don't know. Race would be qualitatively different, I would think. Um, the the different here's the question: um, whether this generation in Matthew 24 refers to a future generation, right? Like this generation, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, but Jesus really meant one in the future type thing, which is which is possible. Remember, the Bible falls under the humanities. It's not a hard science. Right? So there is no certainty. There's possibility, which everything is possible, and there's probability. Right? And that's where we that's where we live. That's what interpretation is. Right? My interpretation are my judgments of what is most probable. Did you read the paper? Did you read about Israel and the UN and the European Union and the United States? What they're planning on doing is Israel does make peace. For the Palestinians is to make Palestine a nation, making the old part of Jerusalem into the capital, which includes the Next week we're going to discuss the significance of Israel. So, history-wise, looking at that, it's, it's interesting. It is. You know, it absolutely is. Goes back to believe and be prepared, and then once you like to kind of figure that out, but you might not need to. Absolutely. Yep. Jesus could come back at any time. Prepare for the for the what is it? Prepare for the worst. Expect the best. Yeah. So so you know I mean I believe Jesus could come back at any time. Do I think it's most probable that Jesus is coming back like next week, next month, next year? Awesome. But you know what? I could be wrong. And we'll talk about this a little more next week because we're over time. But, um, you know, once we start talking about some of these theological systems, which we will next week in terms of, you know, when the rapture is compared to the tribulation and all these kinds of things, the beauty of it is, look, I personally don't really believe in the pre-tribulation rapture. But if it happens and I'm a Christian, I'm not going to get left left behind. You know what I mean? So it doesn't matter. Right? Getting evacuated doesn't count. It's whether you're a Christian or not, right? So at the end of the day, does that, you know, some of these distinctions and what we tend to fight about as Christians become less and less important. Just after what we studied in Matthew, it says when Jesus comes back, 
could be two brothers in the field and one is being taken. Yeah, well, in Matthew, it, what's funny is, right, but it talks about Noah's generation. Now, tell me something. In Noah's generation, how was one taken? Well, but what he was talking about is nobody knows what happens. Here's my... No, no, I, I agree. But this is a, this is one of those images that really I had to wrestle with for a while. This one is taken and one is left. You two are grinding in the mill and one is taken and one is left. But the metaphor that's being used that appeals back to the Old Testament was God coming in judgment and wiping people away. So the implication, if you're just going to read the text, is that the ones that are taken are taken in judgment as opposed to taken in a rapture. Just a thought. Go back and read the text. It's fun to play with. Now, Christians who don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture still believe in the rapture. They just believe the rapture is the second coming. We'll talk all about that finitude next week. Any other questions that you have, I'll be happy to stay around. Um, But as a class, let me pray for you. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your faithfulness to us despite our struggles to to, uh, learn more about you. I pray, God, that you would um, show us what is important, that we know you, that we uh, have faith in you, that we show your love and your life to those with whom we have contact um, and, uh, and that we continue to walk towards you. Um, I pray that you would uh, give light to our eyes and to our minds and to our hearts because our sincere desire is to know you better, not to know theology or historical knowledge per se, but to genuinely study in order to know you better, regardless of where we land on certain theological issues, God. We do this to love you with our mind as well as our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.